Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1216, The Beely Plaza Blues. This is being recorded on November 26th of the year 2021. Uh, before I get into the main body of the broadcast, three links that can be found at the top of each program description for For the Record and also at the top of each Food for Thought post. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments made by Terrafractal, mostly made by Terrafractal, our brilliant contributing editor. Uh, that is spelled, by the way, P-T-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L. And, uh, again, the, he has been contributing many, many, many uh, really important stories, and there is way too much going on for me possibly to update in uh, one-hour weekly programs. And the second link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by Sister Station WFMU. If podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting for the record and also archiving the uh, For the Record shows uh, on a website. And last but most assuredly not least, the third link, again, uh, along with the podcast and comments links, uh, found at the top of each program description and each Food for Thought post will enable you to obtain the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it. In addition to all of my life's work, there is also a mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. The newest iteration of the flash drive will be available, uh, very well, it, it basically is, uh, current, and it will be, it uh, will contain material through for the record 1215. That is the last program recorded. I can't stress strongly enough that listeners should get that flash drive. Not only will it basically make you a repository of all of the information that I have put together, and I'm now in my 43rd year on the air, but basically if, God forbid something happens to the website, to the radio stations, or to yours truly, you will have that information. Uh, I have stressed in past programs that I am extremely pessimistic. I couldn't be more pessimistic. I think there is going to be a third world war, and uh, I suspect it basically is already underway. Uh, the full court press against China has, among other things, featured what I called in uh, the most recent broadcast, the North Woods virus. People who uh, say there wouldn't be a third world war, well, uh, a government that will do this, i.e. Uh, COVID, will do anything. And basically, uh, the, the uh, government, it, uh, the evidence is very strong. They not only attacked every population on Earth, but our own as well. That is in keeping with uh, Operation Northwoods, and this is the Northwoods virus, in my opinion. Uh, people say, oh, they wouldn't do that. Yeah, well, a government that will do this 
will do anything. Anyway, I am incredibly pessimistic, and I think that it is important for people to preserve the historical record. Uh, this way, when your grandchildren, assuming they survive, are asking why it is that they're living in a rusted uh, Chevy sport van and uh, scavenging for uh, mushrooms and edible fungi and fighting it out with former army rangers for rat-killing turf, uh, at least you can perhaps explain to them what things were like and what happened. Because, again, I think things are going south in a big, big way. And uh, the flash drive will be current as of 12.15. So uh, use that link, get the flash drive, and once again, I get no money whatsoever from this, which I guess <laughs> uh, makes me unique in one regard, and that I basically uh, not profited at all from my life's work. So uh, that is where that is at. Now, the title of the program, The Dealey Plaza Blues, obviously alludes to Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. That is where uh, President Kennedy was assassinated on November 22nd, 1963. This past Monday was the 58th anniversary of his assassination. And uh, the Dealey Plaza Blues is a multi- level of uh, reference. It alludes to the fact that uh, <laughs> well, basically I uh I find it impossible to contemplate the reality of President Kennedy's assassination uh, without getting the blues. And beyond that, uh, the coverage of the assassination was altogether depressing. I'm going to begin the discussion with an article by Tim Weimer, who has written for, among other publications, the New York Times, which published the Warren Report, and he published an article this past Monday in Rolling Stone magazine that uh, basically not only discounts the notion of any conspiracy behind President Kennedy's assassination, but blames it all, that is to say, the fact that so many people believe there was, on drumroll fanfare, you guessed it, Russian or Soviet disinformation. After all these decades, uh, we're seeing uh, basically people who will adapt themselves to an altogether unpleasant but very evident political reality, namely that President Kennedy's assassination was not only a conspiracy, but basically was the signature event of a coup d'etat. And if you talk about that and that the evidence in that regard is overwhelming, then you must be a Soviet dupe or a Russian dupe according to Tim Weiner and Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, in addition, the title, The Dealey Plaza Blues, also alludes to another article that gives me the blues, and we're, we'll conclude the program, or at least uh, the bulk of it, with discussion of that, and that is uh, apparently uh, the QAnon movement, or a faction thereof, is actually expecting or was expecting John F. Kennedy Jr. to reappear 
uh, in Dealey Plaza and announced that he was running with Donald Trump and would cast out uh, the QAnon milieu and establish uh, a new righteous world order or whatever. Uh, there are some very firm indications that JFK Jr.'s life was actually taken. It was not an accident. He was being discussed as a possible running mate for Al Gore and uh, might very well have been able to boost the ticket uh, over the top, so to speak, in that very close election. Won, by the way, by uh, the popular vote by Al Gore. Uh, there were eyewitnesses that claimed that JFK Jr.'s plane exploded uh, within sight of, I forget whether it's Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket off the top of my head, but uh, we were told that his plane crashed. Uh, there is a one-half-hour broadcast called Fortunate Son uh, that deals with JFK Jr.'s death and probable assassination. Uh, we'll talk about that. I'll put a link in the written description. should also be noted that Jackie uh, basically enjoined JFK Jr. not to look into the circumstances surrounding his father's death. She knew full well what had happened, and she didn't want the same thing to happen to her kids. And uh, JFK Jr. was apparently beginning to get quite interested in the circumstances surrounding his father's assassination. And so that um, helped to, uh, I think, ensure that he was not going to be around. But uh, in any event, if you are going to be in Dealey Plaza... And if you are going to be dealing with the assassination of JFK or, or JFK Jr., uh, expecting him to reappear and embrace Donald Trump as uh, a cohort in uh, casting out the evildoers, I think, is missing the point in a big, big way. And the title, The Dealey Plaza Blues, is also something of a pun in that a major element of discussion in the program is set against the background of a New York Times article that appeared on the same day as that Tim Weimer article was published by Rolling Stone magazine. It is about a Chinese company's purchase of a cobalt mine in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly Zaire, formerly the Belgian Congo. It was the stomping ground, quite literally, for Joseph Mobutu, a protege of the West, of the CIA, and an individual who basically pimped off uh, the Congo's enormous mineral resources to the benefit of himself, to the benefit of transnational corporations, U.S. Uh, being primary among those, and uh, also to the detriment of the citizens of that country. Uh, cobalt is a key mineral with regard to the manufacture of automobile batteries that are central to the electric car technology, and, and because of that, they figure prominently in the scenario uh, of uh, turning to green technologies in order to combat climate change. Uh, 
Cobalt also can be mixed with other minerals to produce a brilliant blue shade called cobalt blue. And uh, that is the third level of meaning slash pun to the title of the program, The Dealey Plaza Blues. We'll talk about that article. The mine that the Chinese bought had been owned by Freeport McMorrin. That is a giant mining firm that figures in a big way, not only in the Jim Garrison's investigation of the assassination of JFK in New Orleans, but also uh, it was a major beneficiary of the 1965 coup in Indonesia that we spoke about at some length and among other programs for the record program 1212. Freeport uh, was able to establish a very lucrative mining operation in Indonesia following the overthrow of Sukarno and when Suharto basically began to do the same thing that uh, Mobutu did in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, former the Congo. Uh, he basically was uh, pimping off that nation's extraordinary mineral resources to the transnationals and to the detriment of uh, a significant amount of his uh, native population, or the population of the country he ruled. And in addition, JFK's assassination had a profound effect on the politics of Africa and the Congo in particular. And it was his assassination that changed uh, the foreign policy of the U.S. toward the Congo. And instead of attempting to broker a peace between warring factions, uh, that had been favored by Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, the Secretary General of the U.N., whose death in a plane crash at that point in time was also in all probability an assassination. And we're going to take a look at how JFK's assassination changed U.S. foreign policy toward Africa, the Congo in particular, and how the circumstances uh, surrounding that change or involved with that change or implicit in it led to the rise of Joseph Mabutu, also his associate Moise Chombe, who was attempting to uh, have Katang, the mineral-rich Katanga province, secede from the Congo so it could be exploited because in uh, both in regard to both Freeport and Freeport Sulphur and its nickel reserves in Cuba with regard to Freeport mining and its uh, tremendously lucrative operation in Indonesia following the 1965 coup. JFK had been working to establish a rapprochement with Sukarno and was uh, planning a trip to Indonesia in 1964. Obviously, his assassination precluded that. And also in the dynamics surrounding the politics of the Congo, formerly the Belgian Congo, uh, and how it was altered by JFK's assassination, led to the rise of Joseph Mobutu, who uh, was presiding over 
the uh, mineral rights for this mine. It was at one point uh, taken over by uh, a consortium that was headed by uh, Maurice Pimplesman, who uh, was actually a diamond merchant and for quite some time Jackie Kennedy's uh, love interest. Eventually, Freeport McMorrin took over the mine, and then it was bought out by the Chinese. And uh, we will take a look at how not only Freeport Sulphur and its Cuba uh, nickel mining operations, but Freeport in Indonesia, and also the dynamics surrounding the cobalt mine and uh, the rise of Joseph Mabuju in the Congo, were directly, all of those things uh, reflect directly back on the JFK assassination. In our landmark series of interviews with Jimmy Jamio about his uh, landmark text, uh, Destiny Betrayed, about the JFK assassination and the garrison investigation into it, uh, we spoke about the very important role of the news media. I think that perhaps the most important part of that very important book is the role of the media. There is certainly much more to the JFK assassination than is covered in that book. There is more actually to the garrison investigation than is covered in the book, but it is a very, very important book, and my understanding is that a recent uh, documentary by Oliver Stone that we will allude to uh, features uh, Jim's uh, landmark research in considerable measure. Uh, the media, as Jim demonstrated very, very effectively, and as we spoke about at length in that wall series for the record programs 1031 through 1056, with the exception of 1039, because Jim was unavailable for that week. The media are more than just cover-up artists. They are quite literally accessories after the fact in the assassination of JFK. And uh, again, in talking about the Beely Plaza Blues, not only a reference to Cobalt Blue, but also uh, the fact, I mean, depressing as the subject is, Seeing the sort of fresh fertilizer that some media voices have dished out in, uh, well, on the 58th anniversary of JFK's assassination is very depressing indeed and gives me the Dealey Plaza blues. There is an old saying that a rolling stone gathers no moss. Well, this particular Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone magazine, has gathered way too much moss. And uh, the article in question, again by Tim Weimer, W-E-I-M-E-R, from Rolling Stone magazine of November 22nd of 2021, is titled, This is where Oliver Stone got his loony JFK assassination theories from. Unquote. Again, by Tim Weimer, Rolling Stone, November 22nd, 2021. In addition to proving conclusively that the Rolling Stone can indeed gather a lot of moss, uh, this article is, well, depressingly representative of a certain genre of uh, erroneous, I'll put it that way, JFK assassination propaganda. 
And even the papal is uh, perhaps revealing this is where Oliver Stone got his loony JFK assassination theories from. Uh, Mr. Weimer has written for the New York Times. Uh, again, that's not only the CIA's number one propaganda asset, but uh, also the publisher of the Warren Report. One might think from a stylistic standpoint, however, that Tim Weimer might have learned not to end a, a sentence with a preposition, as he did here. This is where Oliver Stone got his loomy JFK assassination theories from. But that is uh, perhaps the least of the flaws in this particular article. I'm going to read a little bit of it. Uh, Tim Weiner writes, On the 58th anniversary of JFK's assassination, Oliver Stone once made brilliant movies like Platoon, which won Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director. These days, he's a tinfoil-hatted fabricator, His new documentary, JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass, premiering on Showtime on, you guessed it, November 22nd, is rooted in a big lie. That part is actually ironically true, and the official version of JFK's assassination is indeed a big lie. Continuing, it comes 30 years after the premiere of JFK, a film unrivaled in the annals of American cinematic propaganda. Both are based on the undying delusion that President Kennedy was murdered by the deep state, the Central Intelligence Agency backed by the military-industrial complex. Do you believe the CIA killed JFK? Millions of Americans suspect so. Let me ask you then, Why do they believe it? The tale can be traced to a Russian disinformation operation. Uh, If I were going to give my candid feelings uh, to that statement, or really the entire article, I'm not going to go into the article at length. It basically, uh, you know, goes goes to great lengths to... uh, Tar the notion that JFK was killed by a conspiracy involving CIA, multinationals, uh, the Pentagon and others, as well as the far right. It uh, traces that, again, this can be, this, the tale can be traced to a Russian disinformation operation. That is, well, it is in one sense predictable. Uh, in the 13 part for the record series about uh, the COVID op or the Northwoods virus, as I have termed it, I titled them the Oswald Institute of Virology because, uh, in my estimation, the same basic stratagem was used to frame the Wuhan Institute of Virology for the, quote, lab leak hypothesis, unquote, uh, as was used to paint 
Lee Harvey Oswald read. Uh, basically, he was tarred with the commie brush, then framed for JFK's assassination, killed before he could defend himself. Uh, Oswald was a U.S. intelligence officer, infiltrated into the Soviet Union, among other places. And then uh, the possibility that the assassination could be blamed on the Soviets or the Cubans, perhaps leading to a third world war or something. The brilliant Berkeley researcher Peter Dale Scott has turned a level one cover-up, led many uh, who suspected the truth to go for the lone nut hypothesis because they were afraid there might be a third world war. Even some who knew that the CIA was involved uh, suspected that they would be successfully, that that the powers that be would be successful in uh, presenting the the commies bit, and this might lead to a third world war. LBJ was among those who successfully maneuvered that particular gambit. Further down in the article, after, again, tarring uh, the people who uh, are willing to tell the truth about the assassination as uh, dupes of Russian propaganda or Soviet propaganda or Cuban propaganda, uh, Tim Weimer does make one accurate statement. Our body politic is being poisoned by lies. Well, that much is quite true, unfortunately. It is, and... Uh, I think that Mr. Weimer's article uh, should be seen in the context of uh, the irony of that statement. Now, of uh, the title of the Beely Plaza Blues, as I mentioned, is not only a reference to that depressing article and another one that with which time permitting will conclude the article, of uh, the program, I should say, but it is a reference to the blue color of a buy that can be made with the mineral cobalt because there is an article in the New York Times of that very same day, November 22nd of 2021, at least in the West Coast print edition. It's called How the U.S. Lost Ground to China in the Race for Clean Energy by Eric Lipton, L-I-P-T-O-N, and Diane Searcy, S-E-A-R-C-E-Y. In passing, uh, the whole notion that uh, China uh, moving ahead in areas that will give them a a, uh, significant position in green technology, claiming that this is their attempt to uh, gain control of those things, I think is not only paranoid, but in and of itself fits into a long, old Cold War propaganda uh, element. the aforementioned Moise Chombe, who was presiding over the secessionist Katanga province, blamed the unrest, the, the military conflict in the uh, Congo, on the Chinese-inspired conspiracy, unquote. That goes to show you how little, in some ways, things have changed. Uh, the best description I have seen of China is that it is a society being run by engineers, scientists, and doctors. It is still very much a developing nation, but it is developing very, very quickly. And if, in fact, a country which is 
a fifth of the world's population. It is the most populous country on Earth and geographically much larger than the U.S. If they are going to eventually uh, sustain their industrial development and maintain their industrial output and do so within the dictates of a green economy, then they are necessarily going to have to have access to large amounts of those minerals, including cobalt. Uh, a couple of excerpts of this article um, for purposes of uh, historical reference. Uh, skipping down in the article, it notes of Freeport McMoran, that is the company that had owned the cobalt mine bought by the Chinese firm. The company, one of the world's, actually Freeport McMoran had been determined to sell. The company, one of the world's largest copper mining outfits, had made a catastrophically bad bet on the oil and gas industry just before oil prices tanked and the world began to shift to renewable energy. With debt piling up, the company saw no option but to unload the Congo operations. And uh, some other historical elements in the article. Speaking of 1970, it had been a decade since Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of Congo, has, had secured independence from Belgium, and as the leader of a country abundant in natural resources, Mobutu, that's Joseph Mobutu, found himself with considerable global clout. Not only did he control those resources, but he had emerged as a key intermediary for the United States in its efforts to keep the Soviet Union from making inroads in Africa. And skipping down. Uranium, cobalt, copper, and other ores from Congo are coveted for their extraordinary purity. They are of such high grade that waste piles from old mines often contain more cobalt and copper than most active mines elsewhere in the world. By the mid-1960s, the CIA had set up one of its most extensive operations in the country, secretly bankrolling a small army of mercenaries and Congolese troops. The agency ran missions with the help of U.S. warplanes to suppress Soviet-backed rebels, skipping down. Corporate America saw the U.S. intervention as an opportunity to make money while promoting American-style capitalism. Citibank, General Motors, Goodyear, and others set up manufacturing outposts or offices in Congo. Well, uh, those are some of the elements uh, that uh, highlight that story. Uh, the article itself, however, again, fittingly published on November 22nd of 2021 in the, the West Coast print edition, uh, in many ways overlaps some of the dynamics that figure in the assassination of JFK. And I'm going to uh, reread some elements uh, of Jim Eugenio's landmark text, Destiny, Betrayed, published in Software by Skyhorse Publishing. And again, we visited with Jim Eugenio in the record programs 1031 through 1036, the only exception being 1039. Now, one division of Freeport McMurrin, uh, Freeport Sulphur, figures in Jim Garrison's investigation because it enabled him to uh, connect Clay Shaw with David Ferry and the milieu of the JFK assassination. Jim writes, In Chapter 1, the author introduced 
Freeport Sulphur and its subsidiaries Moa Bay Mining and Nicaro Nickel, M-I-C-A-R-O. These companies all had large investments in Cuba prior to Castro's revolution, and this ended up being one of the ways that Garrison connected Clay Shaw and David Ferry. This came about for two reasons. First, with Castro taking over their operations in Cuba, Freeport was attempting to investigate bringing in nickel ore from Cuba through Canada, which still had trade relations with Cuba. The ore would then be refined in Louisiana, either at a plant already in New Orleans or at another plant in Braithwaite. Shaw, an impresario of international trade, was on this exploratory team for Freeport Sulphur. He and two other men had been flown to Canada by David Ferry as part of this effort. More evidence of this connection through Freeport was found during their investigation of Guy Bannister. Bannister apparently knew about another flight taken by Shaw with an official of Freeport, likely Charles White, W-I-G-H-T, to Cuba. Again, the pilot was David Ferry. Another reason this Freeport connection was important to Garrison is that he found a witness named James Plain, P-L-A-I-M-E, in Houston, who said that Mr. White of Freeport Sulphur had contacted him in regards to an assassination plot against Fidel Castro. Considering the amount of money Freeport was about to lose in Cuba, plus the number of Eastern beginning again, considering the amount of money Freeport was about to lose in Cuba, plus the number of Eastern establishment luminaries associated with the company, such as Jock Whitney, Gene Maus, M-A-U-Z-E, and Godfrey Rockefeller, it is not surprising that such a thing was contemplated within their ranks. And in addition to Freeport Sulphur and the way in which Jim Garrison was able to use investigation of that company's machinations vis-a-vis bringing uh, Cuban nickel ore in through Canada, uh, we find that Freeport also figures in another aspect of uh, JFK's assassination and its its change on American foreign policy, and that regards Indonesia. Uh, in 1964, JFK was planning on making a trip to Indonesia in order to uh, try to stabilize relations with Sukarno. Sukarno uh, was leading a militantly non-aligned nation. It was in 1955 in Bandung that the th- so-called third world or non-aligned nations concretized as a formal entity. And, uh, Indonesia was one of those, one of the most prominent. It was not, as I noted in, uh, a program a few weeks ago, not the largest, that would have been India, but it was among the largest and the most significant. Indonesia had been a Dutch colony during uh, prior to World War II, and when the Western Allies reneged on their initial statement or will to give uh, former colonial properties that had belonged to the various European powers their freedom, that is to say colonial properties that had been occupied by Axis armies, when it was decided to give them their freedom, uh, and then that that uh, decision was reversed. Uh, sadly, the 
bloodiest aspect, arguably, of the Cold War, something that led to the death of millions of people, uh, as we chronicled them among other programs, uh, are discussions of the Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins, uh, because then the populations of these often mineral-rich uh, former colonial territories that had to basically fight for their independence, uh, many of them became bloody elements of contest in the Cold War, and that included Indonesia. Uh, when, again, JFK was planning on visiting Indonesia in 1964, his assassination obviously precluded that. There was an aid bill to aid Indonesia that uh, was pl- placed on LBJ's desk. He vetoed it. And we return now to Jimmy Eugenio and Destiny Betrayed. Shortly after, the Indonesian aid bill landed on Johnson's desk. The new president refused to sign it. In return for not signing the aid bill in 1964, LBJ received support from both Augustus Long and Jacques Whitney of Freeport Sulphur in his race against Barry Goldwater. In fact, Long established a group called the National Independent Committee for Johnson. This group of wealthy businessmen included Robert Lehman of Lehman Brothers and Thomas Cabot, Michael Payne's cousin. Then, in early 1965, Augustus Long was rewarded for helping Johnson get elected. LBJ appointed him to the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board. This is a small group of wealthy private citizens who advises the president on intelligence matters. The members of this group can approve and suggest covert activities abroad. This appointment is notable for what was about to occur. For with Sukarno now unprotected by President Kennedy, the writing was on the wall. The Central Intelligence Agency now began to send into into Indonesia its so-called first team, unquote. Suharto, after the coup then, Suharto, uh, skipping down, Suharto now began to sell off Indonesia's riches to the highest bidder, including, beginning again, Suharto now began to sell off Indonesia's riches to the highest bidder, including Freeport Sulphur, which opened what were perhaps the largest copper and gold mines in the world there. Freeport, along with several other companies, now harvested billions from the Suharto regime. And once again, uh, JFK's assassination fundamentally changed U.S. policy toward Africa. And uh, to give you an idea of JFK's orientation toward uh, the struggle on the part of African uh, colonial territories for independence, we return again to Destiny Betrayed. By 1960, a native revolutionary leader in the Congo named Patrice Lumumba had galvanized the nationalist feeling of the country. Belgium decided to pull out, but they did so rapidly, knowing that tumult would ensue and that they could return to colonize the country again. After Lumumba was appointed prime minister, tumult did indeed ensue. The Belgians and the British backed a rival who had Lumumba dismissed. They then urged the breaking away of the Katanga province because of its enormous mineral wealth. Lumumba looked to the United Nations for help and also the USA. The former decided to help. 
the United States did not. In fact, when Lumumba visited Washington in July of 1960, Eisenhower deliberately fled to Rhode Island. Rebuffed by Eisenhower, Lumumba now turned to the Russians for help in expelling the Belgians from Katanga. This is the dynamic I spoke about uh, when the Western Allies reneged on their initial promise to grant colonial properties their independence. Then many of those colonial properties, in this case of the mineral-rich Congo, became bloody Cold War battlegrounds. And uh, returning again to uh, Destiny Betrayed, Eisenhower deliberately fled to Rhode Island, that is, when uh, Lumumba visited Washington in July of 1960. Rebuffed by Eisenhower, Lumumba now now turned to the Russians for help in expelling the Belgians from Katanga. This sealed his fate in the eyes of Eisenhower and Alan Bellis. The president now authorized a series of assassination plots by the CIA to kill Lumumba. These plots finally succeeded on January 17, 1961, three days before Kennedy was inaugurated. By the way, in the marvelous book, The Devil's Chessboard, about Alan Bellis, and uh, that, that was authored by David Talbot, it speaks about how Alan Bellis was very worried about JFK's inauguration because he felt that it might uh, permit Lumumba to uh, escape the crosshairs. And so he was very emphatic about speeding up the assassination attempts on Lumumba to make sure that Lumumba was dead before JFK was inaugurated. That was, in fact, the case. He was killed on January 17th, 1961, three days before Kennedy was inaugurated. His first week in office, Kennedy requested a full review of the eisenhower Dulles policy in the Congo. The American ambassador to that important African nation heard of this review and phoned Alan Dulles to alert him that President Kennedy was about to overturn previous policy there. Kennedy did overturn this policy on February 2, 1961. Unlike Eisenhower and Alan Dulles, Kennedy announced he would begin full cooperation with Secretary Dog Hammarskjöld at the United Nations on this thorny issue in order to bring all of the armies in that war-torn nation under control. Parenthetically, as we've seen, uh, as we mentioned, uh, Dog Hammarskjöld was killed in a plane crash, which apparently was uh, not an accident. He was shot down, and he was assassinated as well as part of the attempt to use political assassination to change Western and corporate policy in the Congo. Oh my God, what was winning again? Unlike Eisenhower and Alan Dulles, Kennedy announced he would begin full cooperation with Secretary Dog Hammarskjöld at the United Nations on this thorny issue in order to bring all the armies in that war-torn nation under control. He would also attempt to neutralize that he would also uh, attempt to neutralize the country so there would be no East-West Cold War competition. Third, all political prisoners being held should be freed. Not knowing he was dead, this part was aimed at former Prime Minister Lumumba, who had been captured by his enemies. There was evidence that, knowing Kennedy would favor Lumumba, Dulles had him killed before JFK was inaugurated. Finally, Kennedy opposed the secession of mineral-rich Katanga province. 
Thus began Kennedy's nearly three-year-long struggle to see Congo not fall back under the claw of European imperialism. However, that changed. But in October, returning again to uh, Destiny Betrayed, but in October and November of 1963, things began to fall apart. Kennedy wanted Colonel Michael Green, an African expert, to train the Congolese army in order to subdue a leftist rebellion. But General Joseph Mobutu, with the backing of the Pentagon, managed to resist this training when the United Nations, which the United Nations backed one more time. But General Joseph Mobutu, with the backing of the Pentagon, managed to resist this training which the United Nations backed. In 1964, the Communist Rebellion picked up steam and began taking whole provinces. The White House did something Kennedy never seriously contemplated, unilateral action by the USA. Johnson and McGeorge Bundy had the CIA fly sorties with Cuban pilots to halt the communist advance. By the way, that was alluded to in the New York Times article. Continuing. Without Kennedy, the UN now withdrew. America now became an ally of Belgium and intervened with arms, airplanes, and advisors. Mobutu now invited Moise Chombe back into the government. Chombe, perhaps at the request of the CIA, now said that the rebellion was part of a Chinese plot to take over the Congo. Kennedy had called in Edmund Gullion, G-U-L-L-I-O-N, who previously had uh, given him some good advice in the early 1950s about uh, what was going on in Indochina, saying basically that the French war there was doomed. One of the reasons why JFK was moving to uh, withdraw the U.S. from Vietnam, his, his uh, killing neutralized that, as we looked at most recently in our series about the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang. One more time. Kennedy had called in Edmund Gullion to supervise the attempt to make the Congo government into a moderate coalition, avoiding the extremes of left and right. But with the Chombe-Mabutu alliance, that was now dashed. Right-wing South Africans and Rhodesians were now allowed to join the Congolese army in a war on the, quote, Chinese-inspired left, unquote. And with the United Nations gone, this was all done under the auspices of the United States. The rightward tilt now continued unabated. By 1965, Mobutu had gained complete power, and in 1966, he installed himself as military dictator. Mobutu now allowed his country to be opened up to loads of outside investment. The riches of the Congo were mined by huge Western corporations, including, by the way, Freeport McMoran uh, with regard to that cobalt mine. Continuing, their owners and officers grew wealthy while Mobutu's subjects were mired in poverty. Mobutu also stifled political dissent. And now, he became one of the richest men in Africa, perhaps the world. And uh, again, that that, that uh, CIA operation was alluded to in the New York Times article. Speaking of the New York Times, and again, Tim Weimer has written for that publication. Uh, it was the publisher of the Warren Report. Some perspective on their coverage of the events discussed here in Destiny Betrayed and uh, the, the overall uh, political vector of the New York Times during the Cold War. And sadly, I think, to this day. From the book I alluded to, The Devil's 
Chessboard, Alan Bullis, the CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government by David Talbot, published in hardcover by Harper. And this talks about a fellow named Paul Hoffman, who was central to covering the Congo and the dynamics around Patrice Lumumba. And David Talbot writes, in the Devil's Chessboard, as the Congo crisis reached its climax, a new correspondent for the New York Times showed up in Leopoldville with a distinctly anti-Lumumba bias. Paul Hoffman, H-O-F-M-A-N-N, was a diminutive, sophisticated Austrian with a colorful past. During World War II, he served in Rome as a top aide to the notorious Nazi general Kurt K-U-R-T Malzer, M-A-L-Z-E-R, who was later convicted of the mass murder of Italian partisans. At some point, Hoffmann became an informer for the Allies, and after the war, he became closely associated with CIA counterintelligence director James Angleton. The Angleton family helped place Hoffman in the Rome Bureau of the New York Times, where he continued to be of use to his friends in U.S. intelligence, translating reports from confidential sources inside the Vatican and passing them along to Angleton. Hoffman became one of the Times' leading foreign correspondents, eventually taking over the newspaper's Rome Bureau and parachuting from time to time into international hotspots like the Congo. Basically, the New York Times uh, reflecting what was going on with the Galen organization. Uh, one of the things that is so... And again, I have to choose my words carefully. We're on the radio. But one of the things that's so scandalous about Tim Weimer attributing uh, to Russian disinformation or Soviet disinformation or communist disinformation, uh, the fact, and the fact it is, that JFK's assassination was not only a high-level conspiracy, but basically a coup d'etat, which altered the U.S. in many important ways because some of its impact on foreign policy we have uh, highlighted in this program. Uh, the evidence about Clay Shaw, and that is who Jim Garrison was after once David Ferry died under very strange circumstances, uh, the evidence does not come from Russian or Soviet disinformation. Another excellent book on the Garrison investigation, and uh, he, it was my privilege to interview him in For the Record 190, and that is called Let Justice be done by Bill Davey, again, whom I interviewed in For the Record 190. Published in softcover by Jordan Publishing, uh, copyright 1999. And reading from, uh, from uh, that book, House Select Committee on Assassination Chief Counsel G. Robert Blakey once referred to his committee's work as the last investigation, unquote. As such, it is only proper that the House Select Committee on Assassinations have the last word on Clay Shaw. On September 1st, 1977, Staff Counsel Jonathan Blackmer, capital B-L-A-C-K-M-E-R, offered a 15-page memorandum addressed to Blakey, as well as staff members Gary Cornwell, Ken Klein, and Cliff Fenton. Blackmer was the lead counsel for Team 3 the House Select Committee on Assassinations team responsible for the New Orleans and Cuban angles of the investigation. After an investigative trip to New Orleans, Blackmer concluded in his memo, quote, 
We have reason to believe Clay Shaw was heavily involved in the anti-Castro effort in New Orleans in the 1960s and was possibly one of the high-level planners or cut out, unquote, to the planners of the assassination. Not Soviet disinformation. And returning again to Destiny Betrayed by Jim B. Eugenio, uh, one of the things that is worth noting, in addition to the fact that the CIA had a task force in New Orleans to disrupt Jim Garrison's investigation, there was a huge PR effort involving Walter Sheridan, uh, witnesses were intimidated, in some cases killed. Uh, noting the following here, now uh, the main name here is Ray Roca. He was a deputy director of CIA for counterintelligence uh, under James Angleton, mentioned uh, earlier in the program. And Richard Helms, of course, was head of the CIA when Garrison's investigation was going on. Helms wanted the group to, quote, consider the possible implications for the agency, unquote, of what Garrison was doing in, quote, New Orleans before, during, and after the trial of Clay Shaw. It is crucial to keep in mind the phrase before, during, and after. As we shall see, the effective administrator Helms was thinking not just of some short-term fix, but of formulating a strategy for the long haul. According to the very sketchy memo about this meeting, CIA General Counsel Lawrence Houston discussed his dealings with the Justice Department and the desire of Clay Shaw's defense to meet with the CIA directly. Ray Roca, again, the Deputy Director of of, uh, CIA for Counterintelligence under James Garrison. Ray Roca, capital R-O-C-C-A, then said something quite ominous. He said that he felt that, quote, Garrison would indeed obtain a conviction of Clay Shaw for conspiring to assassinate President Kennedy, unquote. This must have had some impact on the meeting, since everyone must have known that Roca had developed by far the largest database on Garrison's inquiry at the CIA. He was basically the uh, sort of known unofficially as uh, the, the man, so to speak, vis-a-vis the Kennedy assassination within CIA, the most knowledgeable of those people. Worth noting that the jury, uh, in, in the Tim Weimer piece that closed that the jury found uh, Shaw not guilty after 54 minutes. There was a huge, huge, huge uh, cover-up and uh, all sorts of active interference. They did conclude that there had, in fact, been a conspiracy. They just couldn't prove beyond reasonable doubt that Clay Shaw was involved. Again, due to that interference, uh, Colonel Pierre Fink, who was part of the autopsy team, testified under oath at Garrison's trial, that he was ordered by an unnamed superior officer not to to dissect the neck wound in President Kennedy's course. That is proof under oath of a conspiracy. It does not, of course, link Clay Shaw to that. But again, uh, I think in assessing Tim Weimer's uh, basic assassination of the truth by tarring uh, not only... uh, Oliver Stone, but all of the people who believe who believe the truth as somehow Russian or Soviet dupes, I think it has to be seen in the context of what Jim writes about here. Helms wanted the group to, quote to consider the pro- the impossible implications for the agency unquote of what Garrison was doing in New Orleans before, during, and after the, clay, the trial of Clay Shaw. 
It is crucial to keep in mind the phrase before, during, and after. As we will see, the effective administrator Helms was thinking not just about some short-term fix, but formulating a strategy for the long haul. I think one needs to at least consider the possibility that uh, the Tim Weimer article may, I say, may with a capital M, capital A-Y in italics, be part of that long haul, whether or not Mr. Weimer is aware of that. And again, uh, the Dealey Plaza Blues, uh, the Tim Weimer article uh, noted quite correctly that uh, the American people were uh, being led a, a, a were being led to believe a whole bunch of lies. And uh, uh, as, he, as he put it here, our body politic is being poisoned by lies. Uh, sadly, that's true. And, and an indication of that, uh, the Beely Plaza Blues <laughs> kicks in big time for yours truly. Uh, another Rolling Stone article from November 2nd of 2021. QAnon believers flock to Dallas for the grand return of JFK Jr. by A.J. Dixon. And the, the press loves lumping all this kind of uh, fresh fertilizer in with the truth, such as the truth being portrayed by Oliver Stone in his documentary, as he portrayed it in the film JFK three years ago, and has, as Jim Diavimio and uh, Bill Davy portrayed in their books. And uh, the article goes on. Fans of early 60s tabloid culture rejoice. JFK Jr. is set to return. The lush-haired scion and former George publisher is set to make an appearance at Beatley Plaza in Dallas, where his father was assassinated in 1963 for a special announcement this afternoon. The fact that the former people's sexiest man alive has been dead for more than two decades is of no consequence. This is the belief set forth by proponents of the QAnon conspiracy theory, which postulates that Donald Trump is lying in wait to destroy a secret cabal of blood-drinking, child-sex-trafficking members of the liberal elite. Dozens of QAnon supporters started gathering in AT&T Discovery Plaza in downtown Dallas last night to commemorate the glorious return of JFK Jr., a man who, again, it must be emphasized, has failed to convert oxygen into carbon dioxide since 1999. We're very low on time, so I will link to the uh, program I did about JFK's death and probable murder. But uh, it should be said that the media is doing the boogie behind trying to link people like uh, Jim B. Jamiel, people like Oliver Stone, people like Bill Davey, to this sort of BS. You've got this all conspiracy theory, including some of the wildest and wackiest things imaginable, such as this. But they are uh, doing a good job, and I would note that there are some right-wing outfits that have been using the very real disbelief that Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK uh, in, in Billy Plaza uh, to hawk uh, you know, Holocaust denial and other uh, elements like that. Basically, leaving people, the investigation of the truth can lead people to think, well, if Oswald didn't kill Kennedy, well, maybe, maybe the Holocaust didn't happen. And again, the, the media is doing the boogie behind that stuff. However, that's all we have time for, and uh, I have got the Dealey Plaza Blues. This concludes, for the record, program number 1216, the Dealey Plaza Blues being recorded on November 26th 
of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.